Hello and welcome everyone to Mike and Amit Top Tech, a bi-weekly podcast where we discuss some of the latest tech and news stories and unpack the hype from the reality. And today, we're going to discuss the past, president, especially the future of Moore's Law. Of course, this episode is motivated by the death of Gordon Moore, the ripe old age of 94, earlier this year. So, Amit, let's jump right in. What exactly is Moore's Law and why is it so important? This is, this is one of those things where all of us have vaguely heard about it. Some of us know this in detail, but this is something that has touched each and every one of our lives over the last 50 or 60 years, right? So, so this is 1965. We've just kind of transitioning from transistors uh, into more modern technology. In 1965, Gordon Moore, who at the time was working for a company called Fairchild Semiconductor, he comes up with an idea. It was an idea at the time that the number of semiconductors that you can fit on a piece of silicon is going to double exponentially. It's going to double every year and a half or two years. Now, in 1965, when we could basically fit a couple on a really, really good day, four or eight uh, transistors on what was then called a chip, this seemed incredibly revolutionary. This seemed almost foolhardy. But over the last 60-odd years, this law has actually delivered. We have actually managed to regularly double the amount of transistors and then eventually semiconductors that can fit on a chip. And if you're wondering what that has to do with you and I, we see the results of that everywhere, right? Everything from smart toasters to the space shuttle to the missiles, to autonomous driving has come about because of the existence of Moore's law. If it weren't for Moore's law, if it weren't for the fact that we can keep cramming, as the word is, cramming more and more and more and more processing power into smaller and smaller and smaller sizes, our world would look fundamentally different today. There would be no iPhones. There would be no smart devices, our factories would look different, our day-to-day lives would look different. So this truly was an amazing prediction. And it wasn't just a prediction, Gordon Moore worked towards making that coming true as well, which is why it's so fascinating. Right. And as you say, it's incredible how robust this prediction has been over, what, 60, 60 years. I mean, if you look back, the Apollo a spacecraft that landed on the moon has 17,000 transistors in it, which is still quite a lot, right? 17,000 of these things. The latest Apple M1 Ultra processor has 114 billion transistors on a chip, which is about 840 millimeters, right? Square. I mean, it's you know, a little over an inch. Now, but I, I do want to ask you something because there's a little bit of controversy here in the in that some people are saying that it's been so robust because it's become like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because he made this prediction, and you know most predictions just disappeared, but for some reason this was picked up and people started talking about it so that it became like a goal. You know, these uh, you know, chip manufacturers like Intel and others kind of saw it as an objective to double the number of transistors on a chip every, every 18 months or two years. And if they didn't do it, it was like a failure. So it became like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Do you see it the same way? Yin and yang, Mike, yin and yang. So I've discussed, obviously, we've been chatting about the positives of this. Here's the first flip side. Look, if I, irrespective of whether it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, if I need to figure out a way to double the amount of processing power of the transistor, the Moore's law comes with a corollary. It's called Rock's law. Now, Mr. Rock was a, was a contemporary of Moore. What this says is the cost of chip fabrication plans 
doubles every four years. So just as we have gone from 17,000 chips uh, in the Apollo missions to several billion in common devices today, we have gone from plants which were expensive but nothing crazy to build to a situation where a single tool, one tool to make these, and we know some of these are made, for example, by ASML, whom you and I have worked with, a single tool can cost as much as a Boeing 747. And you need multiple of these tools in a single fabrication plant. And a single fabrication plant, like, for example, the ones that TSMC is so famous for in Taiwan, can easily run 30 to $50 billion. You've got to update those plants every few years because, like you said, they're obsolete. So there are issues with this. Sure. And putting uh, more and more transistors on a chip is one way to increase performance. If we think of performance as the end goal, you know, that's one way to do it. And that's certainly been the focus of the industry for, for many years. But there are other things you can do, right? It's not the only way you can improve the performance of a computer is by, you know, by, by, by cramming more, more chips on there. There are other ways to do it, right? That was your other point, right, Mike? One was the one was the cost issue with doubling the amount of chips. The other was the indirect effect of it stifling other kinds of innovations because people were running behind doubling the amount of chips on a transit or, or the number of transistors on a chip. You perhaps forgot that there could be other ways to increase processing power. Finally, now as we come to the margins of this, I still wouldn't say it's completely dead. I'm saying we are very, very close to the margins. Why? Because now. The size of a chip that we're putting has started approaching the size of the silicon atom itself. Okay, so obviously you cannot put a chip in there that's smaller than the atom of the material that you're making it with. That is a constraint. As a consequence, over the last few years, we have now started experimenting with new materials, new kinds of chip architecture, and new computing. So I think these are the three weapons that we have that can help us keep increasing computing power, keep increasing the amount of processing these things can do without strictly cramming more into the same chip. Yes, and as they get smaller and smaller, right, uh, there, there's less space between these transistors, which is going to impede the ability of these chips to process anything, right? And if we get to the, the Heisenberg principle, right, so if you're a if you're a fan of Breaking Bad, you know, the, this will delight you that we suddenly see now Heisenberg coming into the equation, basically say, you know, there are limits to precision at the quantum level, right, which is going to impact computational capabilities. And, and there's, there's a lot of predictions out there to say that, you know, Moore's law, it, it taken these traditional approaches of just cramming more transistors on chips is going to kind of be obsolete, you know, by 2030, 2035, as some people are saying it's obsolete already. But that does bring into the equation other forms of computing. So there are a few of them out there. Probably the most prominent one that people are talking about today is quantum computing. So do you have anything, any thoughts on quantum computing on it? So yeah, and just to get everybody on the same page, a classic transistor can take two positions, zero or one, yes or no, on or off. And of course, when we scale that up to billions of transistors, that's how we get from zeros and ones to playing Pokemon Go on our phones, right? Quantum computing can actually take four different positions, right? Each bit can take two positions, so two times two, four different positions, which exponentially scales up the amount of computing power 
that a particular processor has or a content computing processor has. Just to give a benchmark, in 2019, Google finally cracked quantum computing. So they actually solved a problem with quantum computing, which could not be done using standard computing. Just to give a benchmark of how quick that can potentially be, Google, if I'm not mistaken, managed to crack that problem in about three minutes using quantum computing, using the fastest supercomputer available on the planet today, using regular computing, not quantum computing, that same problem would have taken 10,000 years. So we are talking about a scale of evolution that is beyond most of our abilities to even comprehend the number of zeros that are there in that, right? But this is a magnificent break. This is an absolutely amazing breakthrough in terms of bypassing Moore's law, because now we don't need more chips being crammed into a smaller space. We've just figured out a better way to do this using uh, quantum physics. However, still not on our desktops, right? This is still incredibly complex, expensive, in the lab kinds of systems. We'd give it time and maybe our kids will be running quantum computers on their desktops. And so the, the promise is there. there. There's another law that I've heard of, Nevin's law, which is named after Harbert Nevin, who's, who's the director of the quantum Arti artificial intelligence lab at Google. And his law says that quantum computers are developing at double exponential rate. Right. So that's that's even more than uh, Moore's law. So the power of those quantum computers is going to be bigger and bigger. But there are, you know, significant challenges, as you mentioned, with quantum computers today. Right. I mean, they're not likely to be sitting in our phones anytime in the near future. No, they need uh, they need close to super cooling. They're very, very finicky because what you're basically doing is every individual electron and atom is being manipulated at vast distances. Yeah, so there are definite, uh, very, very fundamental levels of challenges. But there are other bypasses we are working on, right? So, so far, the last 60, 70 years or so, we've always based our processing power on silicon chips. But now new materials, including carbon and nanocarbon, those kinds of things, they're really uh, showing a lot of promise. And secondly, computer architecture. We're completely changing in the way chips are designed in the first place. So specifically, we've always done two-dimensional chips. We have already gone into three-dimensional, but even within three-dimensional, to address some of the issues that you raised, Mike, where, like the atoms are getting too close together, difficult to cram more, this, re this leads to heating issues. How do you transfer data between those? They're trying to solve those issues by combining multiple things in the same uh, kind of space. So for example, you combine the memory and processing in, in the same package, so to speak, so that data does not have to travel from the memory onto the chip to get processed and go back. So lots of really cool, innovative kinds of breakthroughs that are coming up, which kind of convinces me that we will keep adding processing what are, you, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, how do you see this slaying out? So I, I think there's the cool, you know, new technologies, fun, exciting materials and, and so forth that are out there. I think there's also ways that, you know, clever companies are enhancing performance by doing simpler things like just, you know, putting chips together in arrays. So it's not just one chip, but you have multiple chips working together. And it may not be as fancy as onto computing, but you can actually get you know, more power, much more cheaply than creating, you know, cramming another 10 billion transistors onto a chip. So I think there's other ways. And there's also, of course, a software that, that can be used to optimize uh, performance. 
So I think if you look at performances as the objective rather than something, you know, very tangible like Moore's law, putting more and more transitions on a chip and performance is the benchmark, then there's all kinds of ways that you can improve performance without necessarily getting into the super fancy, sexy, uh, new materials along the way. So finding, finding word, Mike, 10 years from now, you still think we will have a situation where not the number of transistors on a chip, right? But the computing power, the outcome of something like that is still increasing exponentially. What do you think? I think yes. I have to say yes. Even though we're getting to these kind of physical limits, I think I think you know ingenious, smart people have come up with ways to increase the the computing power because I think it's going to be a necessity as we're seeing more and more data that needs to be processed, more and more applications that need you know speed and and power and performance that people are going to figure out a way to do it. So I do think we're going to see an increase in exponential power of computer systems. And I think there's going to be a lot of creativity that's going to be developed along the way. I have to agree with you on this one, Mike. I think there's just too much at stake to let the concept, if, if not so much the physical principle, but the concept of Moore's law die. That's my sense. We will, we will invest money, time, effort, and brains to figure out a way to keep this going. So I think the only thing I can say from my end is, you know, Moore's law is dead. Long live the new Moore's law or Nevin's law or whomever's law it is. But long live the exponential law of processing power, right? Let's just call it that. All right, folks, there you have it. Another fun discussion with Mike Wade of MikeAndAmit.tech. Thank you very much for joining us and see you all for the next episode.